You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Good morning, church. If you don't know me, I'm Brian Eide. I'm one of the elders here at Faith Church, and uh, just um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to come before you. I've actually been gone the last couple of weeks. Uh, my son, my oldest son, I've got five boys, if you don't know, my oldest son got married. What, a, what an amazing time that was. Uh, yeah. Uh, beautiful ceremony. Beautiful ceremony. I want to give a shout out to something that Logan said last week, pregame, right before the sermon started. He talked about something I think is so intensely practical. Who amongst us doesn't find ourselves gone during the summer? Me, the last two weeks, Logan before me, gone. Uh, I don't know what your vacation pattern looks like. I'm a school teacher. You know, I find so many people, students and adults alike, want to take a summer break from their faith. You know, they, they just do other patterns during the summer. I want you to have rest and relaxation and enjoyment. But I would just challenge you, don't be that person that, that takes the summer off from your faith, right? What, what can that look like? That can look like worshiping with others uh, even when you're away, uh, making time uh, to carve out, you know, time to worship God, time to get into the Word even when you're away. So there's, there's my encouragement to you. I got a little feedback here, and I don't know if you guys hear that or not, but all right. What we're, we're going to get started here, obviously, uh, we, we're going to have you rise, if you would, for the reading of the Word. Would you join me? Um, if you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty of them uh, in the back, and it would be our delight to, to make that our gift to you today. Uh, just grab one either now or on the way out, and uh, certainly I want to encourage you uh, to, to, to make use of that. But uh, let's go ahead, if you're uh, willing and able, if you've got your Bible app or you want to join in with me, I'll have it up on the board. Uh, let's go ahead here. Esther 5, we're in. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king said, and the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request?' It shall be given you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and... Um, looks like I got that in there twice. I'm sorry about that. Uh, then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, Esther and this is again, uh, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow. And tomorrow uh, I will do as the king has said. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, uh, if you've been with us these last few weeks, you know that we are working our way through the book of Esther, and this is our third week in the series. 
Uh, I want to just harken back for a little, little summary of where we've been, right? We know that this is part of what we'd call the historical genre. And yet I find it remarkable that even though this is history, it shares all of the amazing marks uh, of, a, of a great short story. And so I just thought it might be helpful for us to, to think that through as we kind of ponder the, the, where we've been. So let's talk just briefly, exposition, right? We're, we're talking about the Jewish people who had not returned to their homeland. They're still in Persia under a foreign king, right? And this king Xerxes was seemingly all powerful, but yet we learned in the first week he couldn't compel the heart and the allegiance of his queen. And for that reason, he had her dismissed, and a most unlikely replacement is brought to the scene. Esther, who is a Jewish lady, she's a beauty, right? She was chosen for her beauty, but she was a most unlikely pick, both being foreigner, although she does keep her identity hidden at this point, but also just as she was very much a commoner. And yet she's catapulted sort of into this position of prominence uh, in a most remarkable way, right? And, uh, you know, as we think that through, uh, this might be what would seem like the total Cinderella story. But like any good short story, we move on to the conflict, right? We know that her cousin, Mordecai, uh, had been involved in a... Uh, an effort that ended up saving the king's life. He uncovered a plot against the king, and yet uh, he found himself quickly uh, in trouble uh, because the king's second-in-command, Haman, was just intensely, jealously embittered at Mordecai, her cousin, because Mordecai wouldn't bend his knee in sort of this adoration, right? We know, and we'll see it more today in the text, Haman just craved the, the praise of man, right? And, and Mordecai wouldn't give it to him. And that led to Haman doing the unthinkable. He will plot and make a decree through the power that he is granted to annihilate the Jewish people. He knows Mordecai is a Jew, and, and so he's plotting literally the destruction, the genocide of a race of people. This is pretty intense. You talk about a conflict, right? Ultimately, we know that Esther is going to be forced to decide if she will step out of her position of comfort and really use her position in a way that might go to bat and save her people. And as the, the rising action really took off last week, we know uh, that this uh, really is, is seen so clearly in, in Esther 4. And I'll just recap this thought. Is, uh, Mordecai, the cousin, says to Esther, Do not think yourself, to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Man, you ever been in one of those positions where it doesn't seem like there's any good way forward, and yet you know you're being compelled to move forward in a way that's going to require a whole lot of trust? There's a whole lot of uncertainty involved, and you have nothing you can do but move forward. I think, you know, uh, this is where Esther's at. Obviously, she could have uh, shrunk back, 
But I think she's pretty convinced that Mordecai is right, okay? And so we're going to pick it up here at this point. And as we do, uh, our objective uh, for today and the time that remains really is threefold. We're going to continue to unfold this story as it is in chapters 5 and 6. We've already read some of the text for today. In addition, we'll make some connections to this story of Esther and the rest of Scripture. And I'm going to, by the time we're done today and we make some application, I'm going to show why that's helpful, okay? And so that's our threefold goal today. I hope you'll uh, buckle your seatbelts here and and get ready here uh, to join me as as we get started. In Esther chapter 5, we recognize that Esther has already made the decision to go forward in boldness. And I love the backdrop for which she does this, right? She had required requested that all the people, the Jewish people, surround the three-day period in a time of fasting and prayer. And I think that's, that's really the way to go forward in something so, you know, pivotal as this. And as she does that, right, she is definitely going to be risking her life. This is something we can't fully appreciate because we live in a rather egalitarian society and certainly a democratic one. We don't face the same kind of uh, norms and protocols that Esther did. But literally, if she's going to make a difference here, she's going to need to request an audience with the king. The problem is that to do so could very well mean her death. And again, we can't appreciate that in full, but let's put ourselves in Esther's shoes for a second. We know that the king has already shown his quick and hot displeasure at the former Queen Vashti because she defied protocol in not coming before him when she was requested. It could very well be that he would see this as a deep and grievous offense that his first wife uh, you know, goes off uh, in, in defiance one direction, and now Esther is set to do just the opposite, uh, kind of requesting a presence with him in, in a defiant way, right? This is definitely a dangerous moment. Now, let's just heighten that a little bit. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered, really, raised relief artwork that depict, of all things, believe it or not, a Persian king... And behind the Persian king, an attendant, I'm going to call him an axe man because the dude is wielding an axe. Now, can you imagine, I don't know if that artwork was King Xerxes or not, but it would seem that there's a precedent for this kind of protocol uh, in, in Persian history that, hey, to approach the king is to approach him on his terms if you don't you could end up facing the axe, right? And so literally, Esther does have a real reason for fear. And yet, she's got Mordecai's voice echoing in her mind for such a time as this, right? Uh, You won't escape trouble by shrinking back and doing nothing. So my, oh my, you talk about uh, a difficulty, right? Uh, so uh, this, again, uh, is, is pretty intense here. Let's just take a look at this, though. We know that it turned out well. We already spoiled that at the, at the front end of the sermon. Uh, when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Could you imagine the relief that must have kind of come over her like waves? <sighs> My moment, my moment has passed, and, and, and there is a window, there's opportunity, and not only am I safe, he's giving me full invitation to make my request. 
This is awesome, right? Uh, listen, as the people of God, well, we'll get into application later. We can't always know ahead of time that the results will be so favorable. But, but we love seeing what's unfolding here. And so the king will ask, what is her request? We know she defers in kind of a roundabout way, saying, hey, let me prepare a banquet. I've got it all ready to roll today. And when that comes around, she does the same thing for another day. Not sure exactly why the deferral for a second day. Maybe she sensed something of the timing wasn't right. Some suggest maybe there was too much drinking going on that the king might have been uh, not favorably disposed. I don't know that that's a fair assumption here. We already see in this text there is favor, but for reasons we don't necessarily know, uh, we see that Esther is going to defer uh, to a second day. But needless to say, as we jump into the second half of chapter 5, we've got Haman can you imagine? We've already said that he loves the praise of man. Can you imagine how special he must feel at this moment? He has not only secured the opportunity for one banquet with just the queen and the king himself, but now a second one. He's, he's got to be feeling pretty good, right? And so that's where we move on. Uh, we'll take a look at uh, what, what I'll call Haman's vengeance. And that's an, uh, you know, a, a rather quick and unexpected twist right there because he ought to be feeling higher than a kite right now. The problem is that his satisfaction is so short-lived. And this is so true of people looking to establish their worth and their, and their joy by the praise of others, right? Here we go. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 5. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Man, this guy will not be satisfied. Let's just remind ourselves that he's second in command in all of Persia, which is the greatest empire uh, on the globe at this point. If we just do the quick math, that means he can't get another promotion, right? He's already at the highest spot. The only, the only thing he could aspire to higher than where he's at would be to be the king himself. It, but you see, it, no amount of, of accomplishment and praise is going to be enough. And we see how fragile that is when just, you know, Mordecai, a common foreigner, is all it takes to unravel his joy and his satisfaction, right? I dare say, hey, a quick parting shot, so often when you and I are tempted to make our satisfaction on things that are really so temporary, we can find ourselves so quickly displeased too. Maybe that something says something about why our culture struggles so much to find lasting joy. They're looking for it in the wrong things. Well, anyway, his wife, who is going to have some great wisdom for him, that's pure sarcasm there, is going to say, uh, uh, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Hey, listen, that speaks for itself. Really, 50 cubits high? Uh, what kind of spite does this guy have? Ironically, 
and, and not really central to the story. For all the talk about patriarchy and, and the men wanting to be in charge, here, here it's his wife kind of leading the show here, and they don't even know it. But anyway, that's kind of interesting. All right, so, so we think about all of this, and we say, gosh, uh, you've got Esther's, you know, hospitality contrasted with this vengeant Haman. And now we're going to take a look at here what is to become. I'm going to say the, the, the bulk of our uh, chapter 6 we will really just wrap up is calling uh, providential irony. You know, in the midst of all of this, as, as Haman is out preparing these gallows, uh, you've got King Xerxes. And though he's got all the wealth and the power and everything he could want, he can't sleep. That's kind of interesting, right? <laughs> Ever think about that? Uh, a wealth and riches don't necessarily buy a good night's sleep. Anyway, uh, this is m- more than mere coincidence, however. In the waking hours of the night, he is going to have his attendants come and read the historical record, and he will be reminded of Mordecai's act to uncover that plot against the king's life. And he asks himself, hmm, wh- what's been done to honor Mordecai. We'll pick that up here. Uh, Verse 6, so Haman came in to the king and said, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Isn't that just like Haman, right? (laughs) Looking out for himself, right? Uh, Here's here's the irony though, right? Um, And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> wow. Uh, do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Uh, got ahead of myself there. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Can you just imagine the ironic twist here? I mean, how it must have galled and grated at at, uh, Haman, right? Uh, The very thing that he had hoped to receive from himself is not only going to be stripped of him, that opportunity gone, right? I already said he couldn't get a promotion, but now (laughs) it's going to be given to the very one that he loathes and despises the most. And if you're doing kind of the, the quick checklist here, you're going to think, well, what about those gallows? How is that going to work out? Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, this, this is a crazy twist, uh, to say the least. And now uh, I, I just got to have us pause here and say again, we've been looking at this idea of providence. We've been tracing the idea of we can't always trace God's hand, but we can always trust his heart, Right? Uh, we, we couldn't know in real time if we were in the middle of this story that this ironic twist would come about. And isn't that so like God that he can do the unexpected and often does? And, and we could never predict or calculate it. 
And if we base our decisions on pure cold logic ahead of time when it comes to following him and trusting him, man, I, I don't think we'd get very far. This, this could have never been on their minds uh, ahead of time that it would turn out. So, uh, so we, we got this going on here. And as we wrap up, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. What a twist of fate. Wow. Well, that's all we're going to advance this story today. But as I said before, we want to take a little opportunity to make some connections between what we've seen here in Esther and the rest of the story. I'm going to call, really, uh, this section Echoes of the Gospel, because it is very evident as we look at this, and this isn't true just for Esther, it's true for any Bible story that you would read. There are connections that can be made from stories deep in the heart of the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, all the way to the gospel itself. And God is just that genius. He is just that brilliant. Now, the truth be told, these may not pop out to you uh, as, as readily if, if, you're, if you're not very familiar with the stories to begin with. The longer you spend reading God's word, the more evident some of these things begin to come out. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to see them. You just need to be committed to pursuing the Scriptures. And this is really, I think, something of a wonder. When you begin to make these connections just readily and you see the continuity of the Scripture, it is so faith-building, all right? And we're going to come back to that idea in just a bit. But let's talk about uh, some of these connections, right? First one, I'm just going to call redemption, it's pretty obvious that Esther as a whole is a story of the redemption, the redemptive work of God. In this particular story, yep, it's the Jewish people that are going to be redeemed or rescued. But listen, the echoes of redemption and the redemptive theme are, are all throughout the Scripture, right? And this echoes the greatest redemption yet to come, right? Uh, and we've, we've got to recognize and see that for what it is. Uh, God's people will be ultimately redeemed from the, the greatest judgment day coming, what is oftentimes called the day of the Lord in the Scripture, right? There is a redemptive work of God throughout Scripture. Now, what I love to do on some of these connections is you can compare and you can contrast in contrast with Xerxes, who is the seeming all-powerful king. We know that the real king, God the Father, he is all-powerful and he is good. He is not given to uh, whimsical, uh, errant judgments. He is not given to, to bouts of rage or, or drunkenness even, right? I mean, you've got quite a contrast here. That the best that the, the earth has to offer versus the almighty king of the universe, right? And in this, right, uh, we, we just recognize God's judgments are always true. But unlike Esther's people, who were clearly innocent of anything that should have brought their condemnation, when we, when we talk about all of us, 
past, present, and future, standing before God on that great day of judgment, right? We are all justly guilty and deserving of condemnation. And this is where the redemptive uh, elements of the scripture just really shine. And we've got we to see that very thing uh, as, a, as a compare and a contrast. Let's take a look at another uh, theme here. Another theme would be the root of cosmic rebellion. And I'm calling it cosmic rebellion, we'll see, because it, it happens on multiple levels. But as we think about Haman's pride, his vanity, his absolute desire, his craving, uh, really it, it is an idolatrous craving, right? Uh, this, this heart that's in Haman is the same heart that was present in the garden as the original sin uh, unfolded right? We've all got a desire deep within us for something that, it, that can't be satisfied uh, because of our sinful nature, right? We, we, want, we want like Haman, we want something more. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're all as bad as Haman is, right? Uh, Haman, we know he was an extreme example, but the root, the foundational kind of piece uh, that was present in Haman Oh, it exists in all of us. It's the foundation of the rebellion, right? Now, ultimately, Haman could even be seen as kind of an archetype, right? His, his level of pride really is mirroring Satan himself. And in this, right, even this hatred and contempt for the people of God, it is mirroring Satan himself. And I guess I would just have us to be encouraged as we think about this theme, wasn't it so magnificent to, to see how quickly Haman's plans evaporated and came to nothing, were turned upside down on a cosmic level? Hey, Satan's plans are just the same. They're going to be subject to extreme futility. At the cross, they were all unraveled. They were all turned upside down. And they will continue to be, okay? They'll come to nothing. So it's encouraging to think about that. We've got a third one, the church. The church, yeah, the church, all right? So we're thinking about Esther. What is Esther's position? Well, she's queen, but she's also the bride of the king, right? And it's pretty evident throughout Scripture, especially as we get to the New Testament, that the church is known as the bride of Christ. And it's pretty, there, there, there's some striking parallels here. Obviously, not a one-for-one one in all things, but the church as the bride of Christ like Esther, is undeserving. She was catapulted into an unlikely position. So are all followers of Christ who are part of the church, right? We were undeserving, once dead in sin and rebellion against God. We too needed to be cleansed and made beautiful. Esther spent a year in preparation of beautification and other things before going into the king's presence. God is giving us a lifetime here on earth uh, to be sanctified. Yes, his all-powerful cleansing work that made us alive in Christ, but, but a continued sanctification going on until we are made perfectly like him uh, in eternity. So we too are part of this process of beautification. And like Esther was called for such a time as this, church, we'll hit this more in a moment. But I think we, are too, are, are called for such a time as this. You might say our opportunity, uh, just broadly speaking, would be to be salt and light in the world around us. Well, final one we'll look at today is the exalted Christ. And believe it or not, it can go under the radar uh, on your first read through this book. 
But Mordecai is going to show us something uh, of the exalted Christ. And so Mordecai's loyal and devotion to King Xerxes, hey, it led to him uh, receiving just great honor, being lavished with honor. And, And this is a foreshadowing of Christ. But very different from Mordecai, who will be spared from those gallows. Sorry, spoiler alert for next week, all right? He'll be spared from the gallows. Christ would not be spared the execution at the cross. But even so, he will receive his full uh, adoration here and, and praise and honor as he is resurrected from the grave. I want to show you a scripture that I think uh, just embodies this so much here. Ephesians 1. And this is Paul speaking of God's power in raising Christ from the dead. He said, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what, what we're really showing here, this is just one of several passages that show that Christ will receive all honor. He is exalted to the highest place. And, and something of Mordecai's unlikely uh, moment of being honored and paraded through the city is really, I, I think, a, a mirroring uh, of Christ to come. And so uh, as we think through that, right, uh, Christ, again, being exalted after being condemned, uh, and finally... You know, we can, we can just look at a comparison. I put out a comparison because we've already read the Esther passage. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. We've got in the gospel in Matthew uh, 21, 44, it says, and the one who falls on this stone, that's referring to Christ, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on Uh, And when it falls on uh, anyone, it will crush him. And there's just a parallel here. There's this parallel that, hey, getting the kind of attitude and the relationship wrong uh, with this exalted one is going to lead to your peril, right? And so I I just think there's a a lot of parallels that can be made. We could certainly go further, but we're going to keep it at that. I've given you four what I call echoes uh, of the gospel that are present in, in this story. So I guess what we need to do now is just kind of ask, hey, what are we supposed to do with this, right? Uh, how, how does it matter? How should we respond? Well, uh, we've been, again, uh, hammering the idea that we can't always trace God's hand. There are, there are times and seasons of life where we just don't understand why things are happening the way they are. We wouldn't script them that way. Truth be told, we can't even understand, like, is God even involved in this? We're, we're even tempted to think he's absent. We've already, we've already made reference the last couple of weeks that the book of Esther doesn't even mention the name of God. Isn't that so like so much of our life? We can kind of run through a week or a month or even a season and just kind of like be on autopilot and status quo, but... And things coming and going, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but, but God's just not part of the, the scene, it would seem. But Esther is a good reminder that that's just not 
the case. And as we've been saying that we can trust his heart, I think that helps us to land on where I want us to apply uh, this segment of this story, right? I believe that God would have us to be emboldened by his providence. And, and I think that there's several levels we can work that out on. But, but again, if you think about providence being this idea of God lovingly and wisely directing all events for his purposes, hey, the people of God are meant to be emboldened by this very thing. And I want us to, I want us to unpack that just a, a little here. I'll, I'll say this much, right? As we uh, wrap up, I, I'm going to say that we might all be in different places in the room. It, it is very likely that there are some in this room that, truth be told, you'd say, hey, I'm not a follower of Christ. I'm here but I haven't made that decision. Maybe there are various reasons for that. Maybe one of them is you have a hard time trusting him. Listen, it's not by any coincidence that you're here this morning. God's desire for you, even as we've seen this idea of, of really uh, a king who holds power, right? Haman, so imperfectly. We, we know we've got an all-powerful ruler of the universe, and his desire for you is that you would turn from rebellion to him, that you would bend your knee before him and that you would humbly receive the blessing and the favor and the gift that he has for you to cancel your sins in Christ. But maybe there's another group of us here. I, I suspect in this room that there are some that would say, hey, uh, let's, let's get back to that idea of I can't find God anywhere in what's going on in my life right now. Life seems to be a mess. Maybe you have fear. Maybe you have anger. You can't find God in the midst of it. Listen, I, I want you to know, and I say this just directly, I am confident God wants you to know that he loves you and that he is actively at work even in what you can't see right now. He wants you to leave today encouraged. we get more to, to maybe how we can get there. But that final group, right? And this may be many of us. Final group I want to address here is just those that may honestly say, hey, my faith has plateaued. If you haven't reached that point, you stick around the faith a little longer. Every one of us gets to, to points of being plateaued in our faith. And, and I believe that this idea of being emboldened in God's providence is going to, like Esther, push us out of our comfort zone and bring us to a point of recognizing it's for such a time as this. God hasn't called me to live out a status quo, right? How do you recognize if I'm talking about you? Well, hey, I'm just going to ask it bluntly. When is the last time you would say that you've taken a risk in your faith, a risk that is maybe described as, hey, it, it could cost me something if I step out in this way. If you're like me, hey, you go through many seasons where nothing costly about it. You've kind of learned to plateau and you're doing the status quo, got it on cruise control, autopilot, whatever you want to call it, and just ride it out till Jesus comes back. <laughs> Can you identify with that? I, maybe I'm the only one in the room. I, I don't know. Okay, I'll put myself out there. I, I go through these seasons. I believe, church, 
that God is wanting through this series to push many of us to step out from our comfort zones. And I don't say that wagging my finger. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with us. Listen, I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for 30, 40, 50 years. You've been walking with him for six months, right? We all have a tendency to peak and to plateau. And my question for you as we wrap up today, as we think about what should we do with this, is to say, if we can recognize that we've got an all-powerful God that holds the hearts of kings in his hands, that is working all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, if he shows a track record throughout the scriptures in stories like Esther of saying, I got this covered, you can step out. Yeah, it's going to be scary, but I got you. Thank you. This, this, folks, this church is where we need to allow God to work. Because if we don't, we grow stagnant. And I believe that God is showing these things in the Scripture to give us courage. I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm not going to put together a list of where you need to step out. I, I have a feeling if you will commit yourself this week to prayer... God will make it pretty evident if he hasn't already where he's tapping your shoulder to step up and step out, right? But to know God's goodness and his wisdom and his omniscience. Listen, if we could know everything that God knows, we would make the same decisions about our life that he is providentially unfolding before us. We wouldn't choose something different if we could see and know what he knows, and folks, this is where we got to take a rich idea like providence. we got to take it down from the lofty shelf of theologi- theological truth. We're going to say, I'm going to put this on in my daily walk. I'm going to see this make a difference. This is where your faith will grow wings. Some of you might say, hey, my faith seems kind of dry and boring. It's dull. My guess is you probably haven't been recognizing that God is calling you for such a time as this to step out in confidence of his providential leading. And so that's what I think God's got for us today. Would you join me in prayer? As we, as we do, I want to leave us with one encouraging passage here. Look, look how Paul puts this on. He says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's confidence in God's providential loving lead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we delight in your goodness so clearly on display in the scripture, and yet we so often struggle. We're just being honest, Lord. We struggle to put it on in our day-to-day life it seems almost easier to believe that you will show up in power in somebody else's life or in some other time period. But Lord, you haven't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same powerful providence you unleashed in the time of Esther, you intend to use here in our lives too. Would you stir in us that we might trust you more fully? Would you give us a heart like Esther, 
perhaps in prayer and in fasting, to resolve to go forward, not knowing what the outcome will be, but trusting that you will be there. I pray, Lord, that you would be very much at work in this coming week. I pray that you would turn the hearts of our church to prayerfully seek you and ask that you would guide. I pray that in that moment, you would make it very clear, whatever step, small or big, that you're asking of us to step up in boldness. But I pray, Lord, in the end, that we wouldn't shrink back for such a time as this. I pray that you would give us a heart that is not satisfied with that, but give us a willingness to step out in boldness. Grow our faith, Lord. Help us to make a real difference as salt and light in our community, in our lives of our, our, our family, in our friends and neighborhood, and in our coworkers. We give you thanks and praise. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.